Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin the program with Marvin Lowe, State Street Senior Global Market Strategist. Marvin, fantastic to have you with us. Let me bring this quote to our audience. It comes from Goldman over the weekend. The S&P 500 trades just 17% below its all-time high. Median S&P 500 constituents trade 28% below record highs. Sharp declines in market breadth in the past have often signaled large market drawdowns. Can we just start there, Marvin? Can you speak to the weakness, the market breadth, the story of the last several weeks? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of the story that we've had certainly um, since the middle of last year, where uh, a handful of, you know, growth technology stocks have uh, driven uh, a large part of the returns. We, we, we had a little bit of period where there was a little bit of a reflation trade, you know, maybe a little bit more outperformance from cyclicals versus defensives. Uh, but, you know, that certainly was in the past and last year. And we're not seeing any of it, um, even though even though stocks have rallied, you know, quite uh, impressively over the last few weeks. You know, all, all that really shows is, is a concentration in, in, in a few names that people can get their uh, minds around a little bit more. Uh, but in terms of, um, you know, all of the central bank put uh, potentially making its way into the real economy, um, I think those internals and that breath is not saying that. That's not saying that the bet is currently on central banks to backstop markets, just to be clear. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah well, uh, you know, certainly certainly to provide liquidity, um, a, a certain degree of backstop uh, from the perspective of making sure they function. But uh, that money making its way into the real economy and actually driving kind of the economic growth that we need to see uh, a sustainable um, uh, return to economic activity, um, you know, is, is, is not being shown in either those, uh, those internals and or a lot of the other asset classes that are, um, that are more flashing yellow. Uh, Marvin, Tom Keene here as well. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, John and Lisa, uh, on a really different Monday morning. Marvin, a long time ago, you were with a firm called Hambrecht & Quist, so you've got a viral DNA of technology like nobody in macro <laughs> strategy. Ben Laidler wrote a blistering note out of London in the last six hours, which basically says, everybody gloomy on the fangs, get over it. They're going to dominate. Do you agree? Um, you know, I, I, I think I think that um, their competitive advantage is something that they can maintain. Um, you know, certainly uh, First Mover has, has helped all of these companies um, uh, put themselves in a position from a cash flow as well as you know, dominating what um, the world is consuming uh, to a certain degree going forward. Um, from a market breadth perspective, however, um, you know, I, I, think, I think you have bigger concerns about where overall stocks go. But, you know, certainly these companies um, do have some com competitive advantages that they can maintain. The top five make up about a fifth of the overall index. It's the same as the bottom 350 on the S&P 500. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. Wow. Uh, Marvin, there's just a belief that when we come out of this on the other side, the big can get a whole lot bigger, that the competitive landscape's gonna change. These are the companies with the balance sheets, with the access to capital markets, with the cash ready to go. They've got a huge advantage on the other side, haven't they? Yeah, I, I, I think they do. Um, you know, they certainly had it um, even as uh, there was broader mark, market participation last year, uh, but you know, certainly um, uh, they outperformed. And really the, the cash flow aspect, kind of given how this virus has really 
uh, collapsed cash flows for, for you know, everybody and, and every company at the same time is a big advantage. Marvin, not all of the big tech names are the same. I'm looking at Facebook, which is set to report on Wednesday. It's down more than 7% year to date. Uh, Apple shares down more than 3% year to date. Amazon is what we're talking about here. Amazon shares up more than 30% year to date. How much longer can Amazon carry the entire market on its back? You know, from from the perspective of, of um, individual companies, that's, that's not necessarily my purview. Um, but, you know, really, it, it, it's unhealthy to, to certainly just have five companies yeah. that are driving right. all the gains. You know, it's pretty easy to say that. No, Marvin, when you come on Bloomberg Surveillance, we don't need to know buy, hold, sell on Amazon, but we just want to know to $5 what level we should acquire Amazon. On. That's all. <laughs> no big deal. Marvin, I want to ask you about the world of Lisa Bramowitz, which is credit spreads. And the idea of how do I use them as a signal of better things to come? How do you observe credit spreads if you want to try to figure out if this market is higher? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, we need to separate kind of the, the Fed put um, that has been effective in stabilizing credit spreads um, and then start to see um, positive performance from a spread perspective um, across all of the different uh, rating categories. Um, you know, we certainly got a big up, uh, updraft um, uh, spread compression over the, over the three weeks um, following some of the announcement of Fed facilities. But, you know, really we are uh, waning in terms of further improvement and um, really parsing out the concept of liquidity versus solvency, I think, is where we are at this stage. And, um, you know, from, from corporate America, we are hearing just how tight cash flows are, you know, either from the perspective of we only have um, X number of weeks, months left in cash flow and or, you know, some of those um, bankruptcy and, and defaults that we're starting to hear about. Marvin, always great to get your thoughts on a program. Appreciate your time. I hope you and yours are doing well. Marvin Lowe there of State Street. Personifying the middle ground for the Republican Party is French Hill, the second district in Arkansas. He is the congressman from Little Rock. French, I want you to talk about the battle that's not in the media, not in the headlines, which is the middle ground of the Republican Party and the middle ground of the Democratic Party. What does a president need to do to tilt that in the appropriate direction? Well, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Look, it's so important that the president deliver the fight against the virus successfully, carefully balance, reopen the economy with our governors, and then get our economy back towards full capacity. I think that's how he'll be measured now. He didn't pick this fight. Uh, yeah. He's got it. And I think for the middle, in listening to members of Congress in the middle, talking to the president, that's what they're focused on, uh, safety of their uh, folks at home and getting the mm-hmm. economy back open. Kevin Cirilli just spoke about the regionalness, the state by state feel of this. You have a meat crisis, a meat processing crisis in your Arkansas and, of course, all of the Middle West of this nation. How do you explain to Governor Cuomo of New York that he needs to be sensitive to this huge, tangible issue of viruses in our meat processing facilities? Tom, it's a super important question, and the one every American, I think, will read and know more about in coming days. When New York and California demanded of Chuck Schumer a $600 a week unemployment insurance bonus for the pandemic on top of what the states offer, you created a huge wage disparity 
in many meat processing jobs. So you have them able to make more money uh, not working, number one. Number two, there's fear of COVID in these plants, that the plants don't have adequate PPE. And then finally, of course, we've had outbreaks of COVID in some of these plants. This is coming together in a perfect storm of disrupting our supply chain. I would say to Governor Cuomo, you've got to have empathy there because it's going to affect every state in the, in the country if we don't have a, a functioning protein supply chain. Well, to Tom's very important point about the state-by-state nature of the efforts to combat the coronavirus, at least in the economic uh, perspective, there have been complaints that there isn't a more comprehensive federally driven reopening plan that has been doled out. And I'm wondering what your sense of that is. You know, is there some sort of blueprint in the works to get things on uh, on board in a way that enables supply chains, et cetera, to operate in, in a way that that works well let me step back from the supply chain just for a moment and say i think that the cdc coronavirus task force guidelines on phasing excuse me are being adopted by our governors and connected with local conditions on the ground infections hospitalizations and the ability to get certain kinds of businesses back and i think you'll see that diversity across the country i think that's how it should be on the supply chain issue I'm not so sure there shouldn't be more leadership and engagement from uh, Sonny Perdue, our ag secretary, our labor unions, and our corporate management to recognize this could be a major national issue and requires immediate, uh, coordinated attention. What would you like to see on that front? Well, I think Tyson Foods, you saw, uh, put national ads in all the major newspapers in the country talking about paying a bonus to labor, uh, providing PPE, Uh, providing a safe workplace. Uh, That's how important this has become. We have almost, I know, over 30 plants negatively impacted by labor concerns of the virus or by uh, actual uh, concerns. And I think this unemployment insurance rate uh, that the big states insisted in the CARES Act has contributed to it. There's just no doubt about that. Uh, French Hill, you are a Southern gentleman. The Southern senators of the GOP seem to be removed and comfortable within the structure of the Senate and how they're voting. What would be your counsel to the Senate leadership as they go to the first Tuesday of November? What's the the thing they need to be aware of so you don't end up with a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and maybe a Democratic president? Well, Tom, I believe the world is now turning on, as I've said, how we are successful working with our state and our federal response on beating this virus and uh, and uh, getting our economy back. And I think it's just going to be uh, a leadership-focused election, delivering leadership at that local mayors, state governors, and at the top of the government, the president and his cabinet. When I, I look, we're going to run on. I think. I think really, truly, well, elections this fall are going to run on leadership and they will be evaluated on what kind of success but Mm -hmm. leadership brings both success and failure and you can still be successful even when you have setbacks 
So what would you do with this press conference? John Farrell's glued to the press conference every single day, watching the theater of it. French Hill doesn't care about Congressman's the Congressman's laughing of it. now, Tom. What, well, you know, I mean, John, actually, you know, I, I, as you or Brad Pitt would do, Dr. Fauci, on Saturday Night Live this weekend. Congressman, yeah. what, what would be your recommendation to the president is he loves to create theater? Well, he does love to create theater. He has a... Uh, a uh, a primetime running show with a great supporting <laughs> cast. Uh, he has a outstanding enemy, which is the virus uh, that's been thrust upon us by foreign uh, activity. So it is good theater, but the president is demonstrating his uh, leadership and engagement there. I think he shows his humanity in these press conferences, but I would make them shorter. Uh, yeah. and I would make them, I would provide the information that America needs. Uh, let his experts uh, provide economic and public health information. But I do find them informative. And I know John is fascinated by them because they he are is. globally informative. <laughs> uh, but I'd stick to, stick to the facts, reduce the speculation. But I do think it shows President Trump's humanity, his engagement. his. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, anyway, I, do, I would make them shorter is the answer to your question. French Hill, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. The congressman from Little Rock, of course, from uh, Arkansas. He writes the most granular report on the business of hydrocarbons. He can tell you about the wholesale price of gasoline in Fargo. He can tell you about something in Houston I can't even pronounce. Stephen Short joins us, truly expert on America's hydrocarbon market. Stephen, if you, as you write your note this morning, what is the single item our audience needs to know in all that granularity? Uh, the fact that uh, oil right now at $13.96 on the NYMEX, uh, I'm still asking myself, why is oil that expensive? We have a situation wow. where obviously uh, there is no demand. The economy is dead. We're not in a recession. We're in a Great Depression. It's bad, and it's only getting worse from here. So that said, uh, there is a reason why oil is probably once again going back to zero. Stephen, going back to zero, when do we breach the tops of these storage facilities? You know, it's funny. Uh, five, five weeks ago, our estimates in the Shark Report was that we were going to max out capacity. When I say capacity, that is the storage complex in Cushing, Oklahoma, where you have to make and take delivery of the futures contract in the New York Mercantile Exchange. That working capacity, taking into account pipelines, oil, and transit, is anywhere between 76 to 78 million uh, barrels. Uh, we were about 40% capacity five, six weeks ago. I thought by the 4th of July holiday, we would be at that 76, 77, 78 capacity. Uh, by all intents now, we're going to be there by the end of next month at the latest. So there's a phenomena in the market now with the term structure, that is prices going out into the future. I could buy oil today, sell the futures contract one year out, and have a net guaranteed gross profit of 55%. So when you introduce that kind of arbitrage into the market, obviously you're going to max out capacity. So that's where we're at right now. We're not fully, the barrels physically are not at capacity, but that storage and cushion is booked. So as we look forward to the summer, we're going to look at probably 
uh, perhaps as many as 40 million Americans or commuters that don't have their jobs anymore. If, if we believe the estimates from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, 53 million Americans unemployed translates to 40 million commuters who will not be driving to work on July 1st. And that does not take into account the tens wow. of millions who are still fortunate enough to have mm. their jobs. They'll still be commuting from home. So we'll have no demand virtually, and we're still going to be producing, even though we are making production cuts, but we're, but when you don't have any demand, whatever you produce, and you don't have storage capacity, the right. yeah. futures have to reflect the reality of the physical market, and we will head lower. So, Stephen, let's do some back-of-the-envelope math, shall we? Quite clearly, yep. the June contract could get sucked down towards zero if the dynamics that you describe continue. Later in the summer, though, if we get a slow reopening, let's think about what's happened elsewhere. Big production cuts, what, by what, about 10 million? Would that be correct? Uh, yeah. yeah de- 20, demand 20%. demand collapse right now in and around 20 million, 20 odd <clears throat> per day. Mm-hmm. So let's think about what it would take to get into balance coming out of the summer. Well, we're not going to see any sort of balance in, uh, coming out of the summer because the summer is your, your busiest time to, uh, to consume gasoline. So as we go into the peak demand season, you have this, this phenomenon where, where the oil is there. We, we have 20% of the daily global <laughs> supply of oil sitting in oil tankers right now off the coast of California. So, uh, so to reintroduce that, of course, it's going to be dribs and drabs. But let's keep in mind, we're looking at unemployment of uh, perhaps as many as 50 million people. When we get that economy started, those 50 million people aren't, it's not, a, this isn't a breaker. We're just not going to hit the switch and these people are going to start c- coming back to work. It's right. going to be a s- slow, arduous well, process. So we're looking at long systemic high unemployment for the foreseeable future. So it is years, not months, okay. it's not the end of the summer. It's years before we get back to a normal market. I, I, I got to get medicated. I never heard Stephen Short this negative. Uh, yeah. Stephen, tell me about midstream and downstream everything the romance diamond you know diamond offshore out of business i get it tell me about the broad midstream of the market that nobody ever talks about how are they going to do yeah, they, uh, well, you know, let's start with the downstream and, the, and then work our way back up. Downstream, it, it, it's, it's all the demand story. Uh, for, and if the economics aren't there to, in the midstream, the processing, the moving it fr- from the production area, i.e. The, the upstream, to your refinery, to your gas processing plant, so forth. If the demand is not there, if the economy is not there, if the Congressional Budget Office is correct and the U.S. economy contracts in the second quarter by 28%, uh, regardless uh, of how cheap you make a commodity, cheap commodities do not spur economic growth. So without that economic growth, it, 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 it is a mess on all sides. I mean, quite frankly, with oil at $13 a barrel, refineries should be doing well, right? The crack differential, the spread between the product, gasoline, diesel fuel, jet fuel, is such that on a percentage return, you're looking at, at fine uh, a return on your investment if you are a refinery. The problem is you don't have anyone to sell your product to. So even though margins for refineries have returned to very good levels from a percentage standpoint, for instance, in the just expired May contract, the gasoline was trading at a 50, 50% premium to WTI. I, I, when you have WTI in the single digits. But the problem is there's a reason why WTI well, is in the single digits. There's just simply no demand. So, so whether you're the guy yeah. taking the barrels out of the ground, processing them, moving them through the midstream, yeah. 
to the end user without yeah. that demand component, it's, it's, a, right. it's brutal for everybody. What does John do with the, to the barrels he's got in his closet? No, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean, you know, <laughs> he took delivery. Stephen, we've got to let you go. Great to catch up <clears> with you, <throat> as always. Stephen Shork there of the Shork Report. Describing the problem, Tom, pretty well. If you oh, want yeah. to buy it, just, there's very few places yeah. to store it and hardly anyone to sell it on to. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, if, if you haven't seen the Shork Report, try to get a copy of it through Stephen. As all of us try to figure out the path forward on this pandemic, uh, Paul, I walked by Mount Sinai and still mm-hmm. very, very difficult there uh, with very brave people working huge hours in the middle of the pandemic. Of course, it comes down to the path forward. We spoke today with, with a gentleman from the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, I should say. And Mr. Bloomberg is a founder of Bloomberg LP. His television and radio operation as well. And we talked to Joshua Sharfstein about the path forward. Like with most viral infections, there will be some degree of immunity, particularly for people who experience illness. How much and for how long is not known. And it's <clears> also not known which test will really capture that. So I don't think um, there is a concern that this will behave very, very differently than everything else. But there's a desire to really understand the specifics before making policy. <laughs> the glide paths are clearly getting better. When do we get to where we've flattened the curve? I mean, if you extrapolate out any given of the myriad logarithmic glide paths, are we flattening the curve in days, weeks, or does it take months to flatten a curve to be like New Zealand? Well, New Zealand is going to be a high bar for places that have so much virus and particularly where there's a lot of um, people living together, you know, in dense areas. So I think the curve may look different in different places. And, you know, model will model one thing one way, but what actually happens may, may be different and the models will have to be adjusted. So I think we're learning what it's like on the other side of the peak of the curve which is better than being on the front side of the curve and not knowing when it's going to stop rising, but is still um, you know, a lot of uncertainty about when we'll be able to return to normal life. Josh, what are the new studies get, that give us more of an indication of what drugs actually are used, um, rightly so, in order to combat COVID-19? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine has not been um, being shown to work in different studies um, and may even be dangerous, although mm-hmm. the best most high-quality studies really haven't been published for that. Um, And uh, there's uh, also a whole bunch of studies coming out on remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug um, that have yet to come out. Um, And there will be some studies, I think, in the relatively short term about the effectiveness of convalescent plasma. (laughs) And there may be others that that come out. I think we're going to hit a period where there will be a lot of studies coming out. And you know, it's important to look at different things, not just the overall result, but if there is an effect, how big an effect, at what point in the illness is the study being done, because there could be a medication that works very well early, but not so well late, or vice versa. There's going to be a lot of information coming out, and, you know, what I'm going to be doing is looking at people who really understand viral illness and how to treat it to kind of interpret all the different studies that are, will be around. But Josh, how long does it take to actually understand all of the unintended consequences of a drug? And as you rightly say, at what stage they should be administered? Are, are we three months, six months to, to better understand it? 
Well, you know, for a particular drug, it depends the studies that are available, you know, and how they all get uh, looked at together. But I think it's that for many of these, it'll be months, not many months, but months, not weeks or days. Um, but I think we will know more about what works and at what mm -hmm. point in the course of the illness. Right. What is Joshua Sharfstein's social distance? I guess we've arbitrarily said it's six feet or you know, whatever it is. What's your social distance when you're trotting around? Um, I just try to steer clear from people as much as I can. You know, I'm obviously wearing a mask if I think I'm going to encounter somebody along the way, um, um, headed to the grocery store or something like that. But, <clears throat> you know, and I also am uh, somewhat obsessive about washing my hands before and after, bringing hand sanitizer with me, you know, the, the usual. It's, um, yeah. it's really a... Um, a challenge to kind of keep it top of mind, but I think it, that challenge is getting a little easier with the passage of every day. You know, I think it will be for quite a while that we're a little bit, you know, that, that we're going to have to change our routines, and uh, it might as well start now. Joshua Sharstein from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, hugely, hugely qualified in infectious yep. diseases there. Joining us now, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors for Mr. Obama, Austin Goolsby, joins us out of the Booth School uh, in Chicago. Austin, the president making comments on economists last week. We don't need to go over them. I made them and I put them in a script and made a lot of ha-ha jokes about it. Economists this week have incredible power. All these central banks reporting, all these fancy people with fancy educations are going to get out front and try to think forward. Do the conventional theories that you learned in school still apply? Do the microeconomics and the macroeconomics that we knew before, do those models and beliefs and theories still work? Mm, that's a great question. Thanks for having me back again, Tom. Uh, I would say we're still processing whether that statement is right about the models as regards the financial crisis, but um, almost everybody would agree that those models do not apply to virus economics, that, that the, the slowdown slash lockdown of this virus are really pretty different than a regular business cycle. So, Professor, if we're trying to gauge out or game out how this might play out for the remainder of this year into 2021, there's discussions of we, we know the second quarter GDP print is going to be extraordinarily ugly. It's going to be historic. But then that's where the, kind of the, the debate really begins as people think about how this economy might start to come back and over what time frame. How do you think it's going to play out given all of the moves that are being made by central banks around the world? Well, you know, I think the central banks are thinking creatively the way that they should. But I just don't think we should get our hopes up that central banks are the main thing that's driving. You know, it, here the virus is the boss. And the number one rule of virus economics, as I say, is the best thing you can do for economics is get control on the spread of the virus. Because the collapse and lockdown begins before there were any lockdown orders. Okay, they, people stop going yeah. out stop participating in the economy because they're afraid. So how this plays out, number one, depends on how successful we are at slowing the spread of the virus, which I think means following the path 
of the now five or six countries that have done enough testing that they've gotten themselves out of lockdown. So the only people that go into quarantine are the people who actually have the disease. And not the majority, you can't go all the way back to where you were before, but a bunch of people can come out of hiding. Um, If we do that, I think the White House's timeline, new timeline, not the Easter timeline or, you know, 14 days from now timeline, but this timeline that quarter two is horrible and we start to see some comeback by quarter three. If we do enough testing, I think that 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 could be realistic. If we don't and we just kind of follow the model of the mayor of Las Vegas or Georgia or something and say, hey, let's just start opening up because we're sick of being at home. I fear that's going to put us back to yeah. zero. We're going to shut down again. Austin, uh, I've mentioned this twice today, and I'm going to mention it the third time, folks, was so important. The essay of the weekend was Tyler Brule, who's a, a magazine magnet at Monocle. He does a great job uh, sort of in the spirit of global and what cities are doing and all that. And, you know, he was writing on the risks involved in getting society back into shape versus a virus. And so, Austin, mm-hmm. when I heard you are going to be on... The old, what would so-and-so do? With great respect for Chicago, what would Gary Becker do? The great sociologist, the giant of thinking about the philosophy of our society, given a pandemic, what would Gary Becker do in terms of bending the curve and getting the society back to work? What a fascinating question. Gary Becker was quite a character. I I knew him quite well. I think that the old school Chicago view would have had a heavy component of, let's call it self-corrective behavior, that they would have been suspicious of government involvement and of lockdown rules and of stuff like that. And they would have said, people will take their own safety into account and and adjust their behavior accordingly they it's in the same style you remember others of the chicago school arguing that seat belts don't save lives because if people know they have a seat belt then they're going to drive more recklessly Um, i think there would be some component of that i don't find that super persuasive at a moment like this because of the you know, in the economist phrase, the externalities. It's an infectious disease, and there are a bunch of people who have mild symptoms but are able to deliver crippling blows to, uh, including and up up to and including mortality on other people. Uh, so I kind of think this one begs out for a more government-centered solution. So, Professor, is internationalism, you know, really? dealt a death blow here um, just because it looks like societies, people, cities are just going to be really looking more inward now. Is that a concern for you? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's a death blow. It's certainly a suppressing blow. And that's historically not, there's nothing unusual about that. You know, plagues, plagues and peoples have throughout the millennia brought on a bunch of inward-looking nationalist behavior and 
uh, often an ugly side of point. Ah, uh, we only have this plague because you didn't pray enough. Because people like you came from somewhere else. We got to get them, you know. So let's let's hope we don't. We've already seen a bunch of that, and let's hope that that we don't see more of it. Oh, so let me ask you about the Fed policy. There's 45 central banks reporting today. I guess the ECB is the most interest, but all of it wraps around the theory that these central banks have. Do you discern a theory within their rules and within their discretion? Is there a theory out there right now with interest at or beneath the lower bound? I kind of think there's not a theory. You know, the only theory that they have is a very short-run theory, which goes whatever level you're at of rates, of QE, of whatever, if conditions deteriorate, you should loosen. If conditions improve, you can tighten. So in a way, that theory says the level of the interest rate doesn't make any difference. We're at a negative rate, so what? If it gets worse, cut it. that's part now the fed separate from these other central banks they at least have more of a of a defensible theory i think because because we're not we're not in negative territory maybe we never will be um but once you're to negative rates look we've talked about this before when i was a student they told us negative rates can't exist because yeah. You could always put your money under your bed. Yeah. And so why would you pay yeah. someone to hold it? So I think that that old intuition at least holds. You can't have massively negative rates. Yeah. Uh, and so once you're already in the negative, it's just a matter right. of time. You know, there's only a little bit you could do. But Paul, it's okay because now that oil's <laughs> now that oil's been negative, now Austin has a barrel. Austin to hold your money yeah, for you. Austin's got a barrel of oil under his bed. Austin Coolsby, <laughs> thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, truly one of our broadest and great, great minds out there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio